A reading from 2 Samuel, part 2. Now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David departed from Baalai Judah with all the people who were with him to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of armies who is enthroned above the cherubim. When they had mounted the ark of God in a new cart and moved it from the house of Adinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Adinadab, were leading the new cart. So they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Adinadab, which was on the hill, and Ahio was walking ahead of the ark. Meanwhile, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of juniper wood and with lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. So David went and brought the ark of God up from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with joy. And so it was that when those carrying the ark of the Lord marched six paces, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened steer. And David was dancing before the Lord with all his strength. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with joyful shouting and the sound of the trumpet. Then it happened, as the ark of the Lord was coming into the city of David, that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked down through the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Now they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent which David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offering and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Further, he distributed to all of the people, to all the multitude of Israel, both to men and women, a cake of bread, one of dates, and one of raisins to each one. Then all the people left, each to their houses. The word of the Lord. Now if you'll pray with me. Dear God, please open our hearts to your words and let us always read between the lines to look for the good news. Blessed be and amen. When I was younger, I loved to sing. I was never the person with the most gorgeous vibrato, like our singer today, or the person with the highest range or perfect pitch, but I was often the loudest, especially in a group full of awkward 10-year-olds in music class who had no idea how to use our voices. I sang any chance I got to, in the shower, in the car, even at recess, because I found my abilities for music long before I found any sort of athletic abilities to do the things that most kids did at recess. So there I was on the playground singing, and I noticed that kids would react one of two ways. They would either march right up to me and listen, or they would whisper behind my back. And when they marched right up to me, sometimes they were there just to hang out. But oftentimes they were there to see if I would stop doing what I ostensibly wasn't supposed to be doing. And looking back, I think, well, of course they did that, right? Of course, we were kids, I was a kid, they were kids, and I was singing 
very loudly at recess, right? You have to laugh at yourself a little bit because all these other kids were playing Foursquare on the monkey bars, whatever, and here was this random girl just singing on the playground. A little strange, right? It's a social taboo to sing in a place where you're not supposed to. And we learned from a very early age, some of us earlier than others apparently, that you're not supposed to do things that make people uncomfortable. Right? There are these invisible boundaries, lines that we can't cross. Maybe we could physically cross them, maybe even legally or morally cross them, but socially, in polite company, we dare not. Right? We dare not make people uncomfortable. Women in particular get taught this from an early age, right? It's hammered into us that we need to keep an anxious check on how much we are talking or eating or showing our skin. That We have to make ourselves smaller and not share our opinions too loudly for risk of sounding bossy. Throughout Christian-dominated societies in history, women have been taught to be seen but not heard. Even today, there are leaders in certain corners of Christendom who teach us that women shouldn't trust themselves, that they should live only for the men in their lives, for their husbands, for their fathers, for a patriarchal idea of God. And even beyond gender, these leaders teach us that we can't trust our bodies, our instincts. They teach us that the flesh is a temptation, that it is evil of the devil, that it must be violently divided from the soul, and that we must repress and ignore those feelings in order to be right with our Heavenly Father. And yes, it is always a father. Here we have a text that blows all of that out of the water. Here we have a text that tells us that God does not hate our bodies. God loves our bodies and what they call us to do. David, one of the most beloved children of God, loved his body and loved what it called him to do. He didn't ignore those feelings or repress them. He embraced them. And when he was performing one of the holiest rites of Judaism, carrying the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, he danced and he sang. And he got 30,000 other people to do that with him, right? Think of the ruckus they must have caused. I'm part of the United Church of Christ, and we're a very progressive denomination. But we are also the direct theological descendants of the Puritan congregations of New England. And again, very different ideas about our faith. But sometimes I like to think about those Puritan forebears in their stuffy, black-and-white clothing, probably really hot before air conditioning was invented, right? Maybe that's why they were so grumpy all the time. But sometimes I think about what would have happened if someone like David and his pals were traipsing through their village, celebrating like that in the name of God. What would they have thought? Probably wouldn't have liked it very much, right? They like to leave that kind of stuff to the Baptists, right? They didn't like that. But right here in the Bible, it tells us that those people who have weaponized this text for centuries, those people who tell us that we shouldn't celebrate, that we should ignore, that we should repress, that maybe there's another way. Maybe there's a different way to read this. 
And instead, we can see that God looks on those celebrations of life and says, that is beautiful. That is holy. I love that. But those puritanical ideals don't just pervade our religious spaces, right? They come into all parts of our lives. They're in the water, in the air. Those invisible boundaries, they can become more and more solid as we get older. And we can worry more and more about what the folks around us are saying, what they're thinking. The pressure can feel so intense that it tramples the wildness of that Holy Spirit, right? That part of us that dares to do things that make people say, why are you doing that? Because the Spirit calls us to. We might cynically call that evolution, growing up, or maybe learning to be considerate of the needs of others, even humility. But I'm not sure that it's the kind of humility that Jesus calls us to have. I don't know if they're the same. Because instead of listening to what God wants for us, we deny it. Instead of listening to what our bodies and souls are yearning for, we deny that yearning. And instead of being humble before God, we are humble before our own exacting judgment. I worry that there is a fine line between learning to be considerate of the needs of our neighbors and betraying the very wildness that makes ourselves ourselves. We often teach this to children. In school, they're taught not to use their imagination so much when they're learning things, right, to just listen follow along, stop playing, stop running around, stop asking so many questions, right? But we as a church know that God speaks to children in very special ways, right? That's what our whole children's ministry is based on, that idea. That belief that imagination and play are so integral to connecting with God and that children can speak to the Spirit in ways that we as adults who have had that instinct for play and imagination schooled out of us don't always understand. And as we get older, even if we leave behind the school halls, right, the popular kids who might be making fun of us on the playground, right, we still feel that pressure from our peers. We still feel that pressure to belong. We might become people pleasers. Does anyone here ever feel like they worry too much about what other people think about them? Yeah, all the time, all the time, right? As I aged out of those singing at recess years, I started to worry so much more about what other people thought of me. And the spark of that very triumphantly non-conformist spirit started to dim just a little bit. I worried about my teachers, later my bosses, I began to conflate happiness with the very particular kind of success that our culture likes to celebrate. I especially worried what the men in my life thought of me, right? I wanted to prove to them that I was just as smart and hardworking and talented as they were. I didn't want that to be questioned. And so that spark started to lose a little bit of that instinct to say, who cares? I'm just doing my thing, right? It's not harming anyone. And instead, I thought a lot more about what I was supposed to do. But who tells us what we're supposed to do? Who decides that, right? 
Sometimes it's an individual. Sometimes it's a parent or a teacher, boss. More often than not, though, it's invisible. It's an invisible entity creating invisible boundaries. And even though it's not tangible, its hardness to get a hold of can make it all the more powerful and terrifying. We can think when we make a mistake, make a fool of ourselves, that judgment and hellfire are ready to rain down on us from God knows where, our own minds. It can feel like a higher power. It can feel like a God all too concerned with punishing arbitrary transgressions. And we can be forgiven for conflating that God with the God we know, the forgiving God, the God with a capital G, right? Because that message has been reinforced in us for ages and ages and ages, that that is what we must fear. But when we worry too much about what others are thinking, what we're supposed to do, I fear we start to worship a false idol, that higher power that might not really be God. But let's get back to the text. How did, how did David and his pals deal with this, right? How did our biblical compatriots deal with their inner and outer critics? You know, not everyone was super enthused when David and his friends came traipsing through Jerusalem, singing and dancing. Michal, in particular, was pretty outraged by their jubilant display. Michal was David's wife, and she had loved him. And they were married. And then he left her, and then when he wanted her again, when he was king, he sent for her again, and they were married again. And that's big oversimplification. There's a lot more nitty-gritty about, you know, biblical marriage conventions. But it's not really clear from the text that Michal wanted to come back. We don't, we don't really know what her perspective is in all of this. And so it's easy to cast her as the spoil sport in this story. It's easy to look at her as that popular girl telling David, stop singing, stop dancing, just, just do normal things, right? It's easy to do that. But I think if we put ourselves in Michal's shoes, we can have a little more empathy for her, we can have a different perspective. She was the daughter of a king, right? She was probably brought up with very specific strictures on her physical and social freedoms. Very strict routine, very strict code of conduct that would allow her to be worthy of the title of a princess and worthy to marry into a wealthy and noble family, right? That's the most important thing she could do. And so if we think about that, if we think about how much she was trained into her role and how she probably like many of us, had to repress that spirit to sing and dance and shout and express her opinions, we can think that those instincts might have been so forcefully gutted from her that all she could do when she looked on David, the only feelings she could muster, were disgust and hatred. Right? I mean, can we put ourselves in her shoes? Maybe... Maybe deep down she wished that she too could be dancing before the Ark of the Covenant with abandon. Sometimes we look on people with disgust who are doing embarrassing things, right? Just a little bit. 
Sometimes we look on people doing things that maybe we want to do but think that we couldn't or shouldn't, and we just feel a little bit of grossness for them, right? Weirdness. And it's so difficult to oppose that part of ourselves that has been so taught to do what we're supposed to do. It can feel all but impossible to distinguish between what is I and what is everything else. And we probably never will distinguish between those two things. Because that is the nature of living in relationship with other people, right? We learn from them. And that is a beautiful thing. But we can't take everything from others. We have to listen to that still, small voice within us and see if we can make it a little bit louder. As I was writing the sermon, I was compelled to do what David did, to dance, to live into my body. And as luck would have it, I sprained my ankle, so didn't, didn't really work out. I could only do like a waist-up sort of dance kind of thing, you know? But David and his friends weren't just dancing. They had tambourines, they had castanets, cymbals, and they had their voices. They were singing and shouting. So I did what I've always loved to do, and I sang. And I was surprised at how strong my voice came out, how it carried. I mean, in trying to connect with this text, with this man who sang to God thousands of years before I did, I felt a strength in my voice that I hadn't heard in a long time. I won't say that it was pretty, but it was loud. When I was younger, I sang at recess because I wanted to, because it felt good to me. I charge you all today to worship in a way that feels good to you. Maybe that's dancing in public. Maybe that's speaking out against something unjust, even though you know the people around you may bristle and feel a little uncomfortable. Because as we know, there is a difference between causing discomfort and causing harm. And if we are following the Spirit of God and harming no one, then who cares if it makes people a little bit uncomfortable? Isn't that what the people of God have always done? Isn't that what Jesus did? Make people uncomfortable? Let yourself go today and see where God takes you. See where that wild, wild spirit wants to go. If you'll pray with me now. Dear God, let us always keep searching for the wildness within us. Blessed be and amen. Thank you. Thank you.